All right, so we are, we're going to be looking at kind of a, what I think of as one of the weirder Bible stories today. And I think of us as kind of in transition between two sermon series. You know, we've been looking a lot at some like pretty thick history and theology. This one's going to be a little bit thicker too, but I hope there's a payoff for you. So I hope you kind of hang in there. We're kind of transitioning into a sermon series we're going to be doing on healing communities and mental health. That's something that I think, I think it was last May, Pastor Caroline was like, you know, we haven't hit on that in a little while. We really should probably um, delve into that a little bit. So it'll be a little like less dense, if that makes sense, but I hope will be really practical and helpful for us. And I think that this is a good sermon that kind of will hopefully bridge those two things. So this uh, weird Bible story that we're going to be looking at um, is a story about Jesus that appears in three of the different gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's Mark that includes most of the details. But by using components of all three of those texts, I think we can get a little bit of a clearer picture about what's going on, right? So this weird story starts out like this. If you've got your, if you've got your sheet here, uh, it's Mark chapter five. I would say a long time ago in a Galilee, far, far away, that's not in the text, but <laughs> Jesus and his friends took a boat across the Sea of Galilee. And when they got to the other shore there, Jesus got out of the boat. And when he walked onto the, uh, onto the land, a naked man came running wildly at him from some nearby tombs, which were probably caves up in the hills. Now, the three gospel writers differ a little bit about the details of this man. So Luke tells us that he'd been there for many years, living among the tombs outside of the village. Matthew describes the scene as having two wild men running among the tombs who wouldn't let anybody pass by them. Mark tells us there's one man, but that he lived in the caves sort of intermittently. So this will we'll go with Mark starting in verse 3, Mark chapter 5, verse 3. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. So the first thing I want us to notice is that Mark says the man had often been chained. So what seems to be happening is that with this wild man would have an episode and he would get naked, he would start to head off and he would wander outside the village and then the community would forcibly try to stop him which probably did some violence to the man as they dragged him back and they tied him up to try to keep him from wandering off. And apparently they weren't very good at stopping him from breaking those chains because they couldn't figure out how to get chains that would hold him. Now, I think if a bunch of people really want to chain a man down, they would figure out a way to do that. But they continue to use items that can be broken or discarded or somehow taken off. And so the man then wanders off only to eventually settle down again come back to the village, and then have the whole cycle repeat. Right, so there's something about this scenario that I think maybe serves another purpose. The violence that's done against this naked man, against his will, is perhaps being ritualized. Right, so he gets naked, they drag him and chain him, he escapes, he wanders among the tombs like a dead person, hitting himself with stones and cutting himself. Keep that detail in mind. And then he settles back, and he comes back, and he reintegrates into the village. And then he gets naked, and they drag him and chain him, and he escapes, and then he wanders among the tombs, and then he settles down and comes back and reintegrates, and on and on. 
And so Jesus steps out of the boat and he comes onto the shore and this wild naked man is up a ways among the tombs and he can see Jesus disembarking. And so he comes barreling down the hills and Jesus seeing this says, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, what exactly this means is a little bit unclear. But what I'd like to suggest it means is that Jesus is seeing that this man has taken on a particular identity in his community and that that identity needs to be named as an impure spirit and rebuked. Right, so th this is just one way of looking at this story, but let me unpack this. So we need to step back a little bit. The word Satan in Hebrew, right? we've all heard of Satan, right? The big bad with the horns. Lowercase, <laughs> we'll go here. It's simply a, mean that mean, a word that means accuser. Right, so when I think of Satan as like a power in this world, I think of it as just like an accusing force. It's a force that tells us that we're not enough. Right? We're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not successful enough, or whatever. It's a force of shame. Additionally, that term can be used, I think, to describe like a mob force that like falsely accuses humans of crimes they didn't commit. Right? It's that intangible power that like, perpetuates false things that are being said about, say, immigrants, queer people. Right now, trans, our trans siblings are taking a lot of that. Even the rich and the powerful. Rich people and celebrities endure all kinds of false gossip. And that force is what we also might call, in Christian lingo, satanic. Does that make sense? Like, it's falsely accusing. So in the Christian imagination, Satan is the way we describe this accusing force, no matter how that manifests. And in the word, it's like the word that we use to talk about that. So when that force is then personified in our texts, usually in, like in a literary context, it's sometimes depicted as singular, and sometimes it's depicted as like a collection of evil beings. Right? So when it's depicted as singular, it's talked about as Satan, capital S. Right, like when Satan is out tempting Jesus in the desert, or when we see Jesus and God like having this conversation over Job in the Hebrew Bible. And then when that force is personified in the plural, like when it's sort of imagined as this more like chaotic cloud of evil, it's talked about in terms of like many inferior evil beings or demons, like a demonic force. So being infused with demons, you might say, is being like being infused with spirits of accusation that are taking on the shaming voices of the world that are in and around us. And so I think that might be one way to think about what's traditionally been called demon possession. Does that make sense? I think that's it's like a, a take that might be a little bit more accessible. So when Jesus sees this wild naked man running down the hill toward him, he says, come out of this man, you impure spirit. In other words, come out whatever force is telling you lies about who you are, be gone. And so that wild man yells at Jesus. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, I beg you, don't torture me. And so presumably, this man is begging of Jesus, don't torture me like my village people do. Right? They name my demons and they torture me for them. You're naming my demons, please don't treat me the way that my community treats me. And Jesus says, what's your name? Which is a way of humanizing him, right? Not simply seeing him as the naked wild demon man. The man says, legion, because the text tells us that many demons had gone into him. 
So he'd been so infested with these accusing voices of his community that he had actually taken that on as an identity to the point of using those voices as his own name. Right? He's no longer Jacob or Jamal or George. He's Legion. He's taking on his shame as an identity. Now, Legion is an interesting way for him to describe his demons, isn't it? Right? A legion is what a group of Roman soldiers was called. And we've been doing quite a bit of work on like, how awful it was to live under Roman occupation. We know that Roman troops were all over that area in the Galilee and that they had mistreated people. So the man describes his demons as being like this hostile, occupying army in his psyche. Mark writes, starting in verse 11, that there was a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, let us go into them. And so he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So let's just take a second here and think about what that would look like. Right? Can you imagine a herd of 2,000 pigs jumping off of a cliff? Can you imagine what that would um, look like? Falling and splashing. I'm sorry, Rachel's like, Emily, stop. <laughs> I'm thinking of myself doing can openers over at like Rutherford Pool, but you know, times like a lot. What would that sound like? Oh, the mess of the after. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll try and stop. But I just kind of like, I love animals. And you just start to think, Jesus, what is wrong with you? God, it's like, stop there. So Mark goes on, he says, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and they reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all of the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And so he got into the boat and he left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home, tell how much God has done for you. And so the man went away and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So what is this weird story about? Like for me, the best sense that I've been able to make of it is through the lens of scapegoat theory. Right? So this wild man is perhaps the scapegoat in his community. And we know that when communities are filled with a lot of tension and rivalries and anxiety, often those communities will choose a person or a group of people on which to project all of those anxieties. I could pause and just say, American culture has lots of different scapegoats. We, we, try, we try a lot of them out. And then the community ritually tortures and chains or locks up their chosen scapegoat to try and keep the widespread violence at bay. Does that make sense? It's more of like an all against one. If we can unite against something, then it's less all against all. And we're kind of in this in-between phase, I think. Now, we don't know what the underlying village rivalry is about. We don't know what it is they're accusing this man of causing. But we do see the villagers taking this vulnerable man, a man who is prone to taking off his clothes and wandering away, probably dealing with some mental health symptoms, 
dragging him back to town and doing violence to him by forcibly holding him down and chaining him over and over again, and he calls it torment. So they're clearly accusing him of something, and it seems like he's mirroring their internal states and he's taking on their accusations as his identity, legion. And Jesus sees through legion, and he knows there's a man inside who is not his shame. So Rene Girard says the classic scapegoating scenario in the ancient world is almost always took place by stoning, if you're looking at ancient literature or history. So a group would surround a scapegoat and accuse them of something, and then the ringleader would pick up a stone and be the first person to throw it. That's actually where the term ringleader comes from. And stoning as a form of death is meant to help mask who deals the final blow because everybody's doing it. So there's so many rocks being thrown, nobody can be named as the murderer. So Legion has taken on so much of the group's shame as his identity that on some level he feels like he deserves to be scapegoated and harmed. Right? So as he's wandering among these tombs, we're told that he would like, hit himself and cut himself repeatedly with stones. And I find this to be a depiction, or a decent depiction here, of how vulnerable groups will often internalize false narratives about themselves and believe on some level that they deserve the mistreatment. Right, the other classic scapegoating story, aside from stoning, is driving a scapegoat off of a cliff. A variance is sometimes a volcano, driving them into a volcano. We all saw Joe versus the Volcano, right? Great movie. No, that <laughs> was not in my notes, sorry. Scratch that. But it's the same reasons. Stoning, um, driving off of a cliff, no one can be held personally accountable for the violence because everybody's participating in it. And I think Jesus understands these dynamics of surrounding, of stoning, of driving people off of cliffs, right? He had actually stopped some people from stoning a woman in John chapter 7. There are a few times in the Gospels where it says that people started to pick up a stone to stone Jesus. When Jesus first starts off his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, a group, we're told, surrounds him and tries to drive him off of a cliff, and they are not successful. He ends up walking away from that, but he knows these dynamics, so when the story tells us that Jesus rebuked the man's demons and went and occupied the pigs instead of that man, and then the pigs went over a cliff, this is an acting, a scapegoating scenario. But rather than the human being killed and driven over the cliff by a mob, the demonic mob is driven off the cliff. Do we see that? Jesus gets rid of the mob, not the scapegoat. And the mob is depicted as swine which are impure animals in Jewish tradition, right? So the mob is impure, not the scapegoat. The mob is the problem. And so in destroying the accusing voices, Jesus is symbolically here putting an end to that scapegoating mob, and he's naming it for what it is. He's describing that dynamic as needing to die. Now, I don't think Jesus actually killed 2,000 pigs in a literal sense. I think it would probably be odd in a Jewish area of northern Israel for, them, for like people to be keeping 2,000 pigs even. I think Jesus is a mystic who meditated a lot on nature, and I think he came up with some different stories and ways to convey truths about humanity and truths about the divine through stories that involve nature and different human interactions. And I think this is one of those stories and I think Jesus is describing this scapegoating scenario and declaring the scapegoat innocent and the mob guilty. And I find it interesting how in the story, the townspeople seem more concerned about the demons disappearing than about losing their herd of 2,000 pigs. Right? I think Jesus understands that we don't want our accusing voices called out 
because uniting against someone gives us a sense of unity and peace. And when we take that away and name it for what it is, that can actually cause disunity, right? So Jesus has gotten rid of the accusations and we're told twice they feel scared. They are afraid. They want Jesus to get back on his boat and go take his business elsewhere. And I think perhaps they're scared of their own violence now that their scapegoat has been revealed for what it is. And perhaps that fear is not misplaced. And at the end of the story, we see Jesus sends the scapegoated man home to his community, which I think is another indicator that this story is more about community healing and it's about restoration um, than it is about like containing a man who is having mental health challenges. And I just want to wrap up by noting that this story describes humans as having an incredible capacity to carry shame, right? That once Jesus released this wild man of his shame and he symbolically sent it into those pigs, those pigs kind of went nuts, didn't they? That one man's shame sent 2,000 animals into a suicidal frenzy. And so perhaps the story is also just revealing how heavy a load shame is for us humans to carry and why Jesus is so concerned to help us be rid of those accusing voices and to know who we are in the eyes of a loving God and what is supposed to be God's loving community on earth. And so we'll talk a little bit more about healing community next week. And for our meditation, you know, sometimes we've been doing silence, but I thought I'll just ask a couple of questions and then we'll take a minute or two of silence. People and babies make noise. I don't mind a little noise. The questions that I think we could ask if you want to, you certainly don't have to. What stories do you tell yourself about who you are? And who does God say you are? However it is that you imagine God. What stories do you tell yourself about who you are? And who does the divine say you are? Let's just take a couple of minutes for that.
Holy Spirit, we ask that your voice would override any shaming voices that we've taken on inside of our own minds or from the community. And we ask that you would speak truth to us, that you would speak love to us, that you would help us to know that no matter who we are, what we've done, what we're going through, no matter how much doubt we have about whether you exist, no matter what is going on in our lives that make us feel like we wouldn't be accepted in the community of Jesus, we ask that that would just melt away and that you would help us know this liberation of being accepted before the divine, uh, wanted, loved, well-crafted. And that as we come into a greater understanding of how good you have made us, um, that we will be able to feel that and incorporate that and that those voices of shame would diminish in our own minds and that we can shine in the way that you've created us to shine. We ask for your help in this. We ask that your voice would speak these loving truths to us through the week. Amen. All right, let's move into a time here of corporate.